Good morning, church. Welcome to City Bible Church. My name is Marwan, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Um, I pray that you're well. And, and yet I know that with as many of us that are in this room this morning, some of you really aren't doing so well. And so let me say, especially to you who are struggling, who almost didn't make it this morning, how glad I am that you're here with us today. It is a sign of God's goodness that he has brought you here to his house among his people where you can hear his word and where he can minister to you in a special way. And I, and I pray that he will do that this morning. You know, let's actually pray together even now for that. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. And I pray that you would show your faithfulness to us in a special way today. For those who are hurting and feel that you are far, would you show them in the ways that only you can that you are near to the brokenhearted. Give us ears to hear your voice through your word today. Amen. Look with me uh, to our text for today, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. It's in the bulletin. You can follow along on the screen as well. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. Now, this is a, a big verse, not only Zephaniah, but really over uh, the, the entire Old Testament. So we're going to take a look at this, at this verse very closely over two sermons. And for today, we're going to focus in on that first line. The Lord, your God, is among you, a warrior who saves. Now, the bulk of the book of Zephaniah, both, again, the book and our sermon series so far, have been about wrath and judgment. Uh, and it's also a major theme throughout the Bible, as we've considered together. But it's not the main storyline of God's Word. Remember with me the verse, or the, excuse me, the quote from D.A. Carson from a couple of weeks ago. God responds to me in wrath because of my sin. God responds to me in love because of who He is. Well, what that means for us is that we can't say God is wrath in the same way that we say God is love. That's because God's wrath isn't who he is. His anger isn't who he is most deeply. One way we can think of it is that God's wrath is his strange work, not his regular work. God is holy. God is just. God is love. And it's from that place that he responds to our sin in wrath and righteous judgment. The story of the Bible is about life and relationship with our Creator. It's about living a full life in the presence of God. And we can even go to last week's sermon and consider the portion where I talked about the land, right? What the promised land meant to the people of God. It was a place for worship, for rest, and for freedom. And we too, as the people of God, look forward to that day. Not the place, but to the person and to that day. We can actually go back to the very beginning and see this promise. 
we read of this very good beginning in Genesis. After God created everything and before the fall of humanity, we we read of a life, a good life in the garden. There was provision and rest and joy. There we had true freedom. And most importantly, God was there. We read in Genesis 3 that he would walk in the garden with them. Now we can also look to the most glorious end and there we will also find a garden. Even more beautiful than the Garden of Eden, we read of a garden city. Listen to this description from Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. I don't know about you, but I read this verse and it's overwhelming. The description is overwhelming. And I want to say, brothers and sisters, this sure and certain future of ours needs to be on our hearts and our minds daily in this broken world. We need that anchor of our assurance, of our future with God, with His people. And I wonder if you caught the most important part of that verse in Revelation 21. The most beautiful part. God will be with us. His dwelling will be with us. He will live with us. Now, our our texts, just like in so many of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament, they hold glimpses of this coming day. Glimpses of a day when we will live in the presence of God. And as we look to our day, we can say that we live in between two worlds. Between the reality of the first garden and the eternity of the future garden. And our plan for today is is sort of to do what we did last week. To have a, a sort of a survey of the scriptures more than just our one verse. In order for us to deeply grasp this theme in Zephaniah, we will explore the Bible widely so that we can more fully and more powerfully see the beauty of the truth that our God dwells with his people. You're not going to get a three-point outline like you normally do or a structure for the sermon as I often try to present you. The plan is to circle over the first line, over and over again, and each time we kind of dig in a bit deeper so we can understand it and grasp it and see what it even means for us today. But you still get a main point. And here it is. Our God is with us today and forever. Our God is with us today and forever. But before we consider the presence of God with us. There's another beautiful truth in this first line that we need to look at. It's going to help deepen what we understand about his dwelling, and it's the first few words of the first 
line of this one verse. The Lord, your God. The Lord, your God. It's a common phrase. We've heard it so many times that I'm sure that you, like I, have taken it for granted. Over 400 times in the Bible, we read that God is our God. Right? This possessive word. Listen as I just read a couple of references. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. Or how about Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And that might ring a bell. If you're not so familiar with the Old Testament, you say, wait a minute, Jesus said that, right? And he did. He quoted it here and even expanded it as he taught on the greatest commandments. Now, in the creation accounts and then other references, of course, throughout the Old Testament, we read the phrase, the Lord God. But to us, he's not just the Lord God, right? A God who is all-powerful, but he's indifferent and he's distant. No, that's, that's not our experience of God. He is the Lord, your God. He knows you. He is working for your good. And he is near, not distant, as we'll consider in just a minute. Now, if you do a, a, a study of the Old Testament, you'll find that the first time it went from the Lord God to the Lord your God was in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 17. Look at that with me. Genesis 17, verse 7. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generation. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. Friends, the knowing of and the belonging to God is tied to covenant with his people. Now, who are the children of Abraham? Who are his offspring? You can listen to last week's sermon to get a little bit deeper on that. But very simply and very clearly, those who belong to Christ by faith. As we read and Paul told us in Galatians chapter 3. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. Friends, for those who are in Christ, he's not just the Lord God but the Lord, our God. And listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this wonderful truth. Children of God, whatever you have not got, you have a God in whom you may greatly glory. In the same sermon, he continues to say, if God is ours, what more can we need? Amen. We could end the sermon there. I pray, church, that you would rest in the truth that God is yours, that you have God. No matter what you may have lost this week or didn't gain that you're trying to, if you are in Christ, you have a God in whom you may greatly glory. Look at that first line of our verse again. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. Now this theme of God's 
presence and salvation can be traced throughout the Old Testament, and it's a direct echo from Exodus. It might be true for our ears, but it was certainly true for the original audience who hear these phrases and these terms, these truths about God that were revealed in the Exodus account. Because it's there in chapter 3 that God, in speaking to Moses, tells Moses that he has seen the misery of his people. He has heard their cries. He knows their oppression and that he will come down to rescue them. He doesn't send for help or come up with a plan for them to figure it out. He himself is their help and salvation. And, and, and throughout Exodus, we have glimpses of God among them, God dwelling with his people, right? He, he's with them in power as we think of the mighty plagues and the parting of the sea. He's with them in the wilderness as a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. He's with them through miraculous provision, whether it's providing manna from heaven or water from a rock. It's also an exodus that God's dwelling with his people becomes more permanent through the tabernacle. Right? He tells Moses in Exodus 25 that the people are to make a sanctuary for him so that he may dwell among them. And it's from this point in, in history of God's people and the redemptive history that God remained in the midst of his people. Uh, in, in the Holy of Holies, whether it was during the wilderness period or when they had a temple or after the destruction and when the temple came again, he was with them. And that's why the land and the temple are so important for the Old Testament people of God. Because it's, it's there that they could worship him. It's there that they could bring their sacrifices and to obey God and to be made right in the eyes of God. Now, we, we can't get into the construction of the temple to consider the different rooms and the different spaces and who could go where and when could they approach certain parts of the temple and the tabernacle. But what we need to know is that though God dwelt with them, there was still a separation. There was no direct or regular access to God. God was near, but still separated. Now, as we think on this theme of the nearness of God, uh, I was helped by uh, theologian John Gill's comments here. And he wrote that we can think of God's presence in three ways. So three presences of God, if you will. First, he writes of an essential presence. What this refers to, at least in, in, in Gill's writing, is to the omnipresence of God, right? That he is everywhere. He is present everywhere. There is no escape from God. And if you are in Christ, that is a comfort. If you're not, it's concerning that you can't hide. Number two, Gill talks about the providential presence. Providential presence. This means that God is both aware and concerned with all of his creatures. And third, gracious presence. Gracious presence. This means that his nearness, or this refers to his nearness and his interaction with his people. And we can think of Psalm 34, uh, verse 18 here. Uh, I referenced it in our opening prayer. God is near to the brokenhearted. That's, a, that's an act of grace to be present in a time of need. 
That God's presence remained in this near but separated way for the rest of the Old Testament. But there were glimpses of a different and a deeper type of dwelling. Listen to these verses. They'll be on the screen. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Daughter Zion, shout for joy and be glad, for I am coming to dwell among you. This is the Lord's declaration. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day and become my people. I will dwell among you and you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. Ezekiel 37 verse 27. God speaking says, My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. What about Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Right, for, for those who don't know, Emmanuel means God with us. And, and remember with me as we've been considering how Hebrew prophecy and prophecy in the Old Testament works, that the far ful- fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies are greater and deeper than what their shadow was. We can think of the tabernacle, but really speaking of a heavenly sanctuary. Or we can think of a physical land and a promise of a land, but really this is ultimately speaking of a, of a heavenly rest. And so we understand that greater and deeper. And so we see that God wouldn't just send a Savior. He himself would come down. And of course, we know that God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the meeting place between God and humanity in Christ alone. Tatiana read it so beautifully for us in John's prologue. We see so much, but I'll point just chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, we see that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We could spend a year in John chapter 1. I'm not exaggerating. And so trust me when I say that we can't get into the depth of its beauty right now, but the imagery and the language used here to describe God's dwelling with us, right? The literal word for dwell is tabernacle. And so it reads, if you're reading the original Greek, that God tabernacled among us. Now, that, that makes no sense in English. That's why it's translated rightly in this way. But we can see the depth of the imagery. The place of presence and worship came to us in the person of Jesus. Uh, go back with me to our verse. Again, we're going to keep circling around and around to understand the depth of it. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior to save. What we see here is that God's presence is directly connected to his salvation. And we considered this in chapter 2, didn't we? But it's, it's certainly worth saying again. God is the one who brings judgment and wrath because God is holy and none of us are. We have broken God's law. We have sinned against Him. So God, if He is good, if He is just, if He is right, He has to come against sin. 
And so God brings his judgment and wrath, and we saw that in Zephaniah 1, Zephaniah 2, and part of 3, right? Almost 90% of, of this letter is of God's wrath. And yet, if you remember with me, in the beginning of chapter 2, God still calls us to seek him. He calls us to come to him. Now, why would we go to the one who's going to judge us and destroy us? Our tendency would be, I should run away from that judgment. Why would God invite us to him? It's because he's the only one who can save us. He saves us from his destruction. And as we look to the cross, we see that Christ himself took on the destruction and the wrath of God so that we would have life and not death. We would have an inheritance, not wrath. Jesus is the warrior who is mighty to save. He came to earth to live the life that we couldn't so that he could offer his life as a sacrifice. Now, you've heard it said that there is salvation in the name of Jesus, and it's true. By no other name is someone saved. And again, there are glimpses that were blurry to those who first read it, but for those of us on this side of the cross... For those of us who know the fullness of what God has done through his son Jesus, these glimpses shine so brightly. The word save is the word yasha in Hebrew. And it's the same root for the word savior, Yeshua, the Hebrew name of Jesus, Yeshua. Remember, the fulfillment is far greater than the shadow before. Far greater and deeper. And we can see that in the presence and, uh, sorry, we can see that in the presence and dwelling of God with his people. Now, at first, God was around his people and he was with his people, right, in different ways at different times. In the tabernacle, God was near his people, but he was separated from his people. And now through Jesus, God is only with us but within us. It's, it's foretold in this and in other passages, but again, we could have never understood these things without the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit to help us to see Jesus for who he is. But we see it in these passages that God would dwell in us. The, the, the imagery of God being among us is this, this idea of that God is in our midst, and, and the, the word here for dwell or among, it means the inner part. It means the middle. It, it's the same word that David used. Many of you know this psalm, this song, right? After his, his disaster and failing with Bathsheba, what did he do? He, he cried out to God in Psalm 51, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That word within is the same word here of God dwelling among his people. What it is, 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 a, is a picture of a deep union between God and his people. And it looks forward to a time that God would indwell his people. As Paul says in Colossians 1, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that's why Jesus could say faithfully and truthfully that he will always be with us, that he would never leave us. Or forsake us. It's because our lives are no longer our own, but belong to Christ who lives 
in us. Brothers and sisters, friends, in Christ, our God is with us today and forever. Now, as we think about what I said in the beginning, the storyline or the kind of the main thrust of the Bible is living a full life in the presence of God. We see that we have that true life, that deeper life, that everlasting life in Jesus. And his words from John chapter 10, which in a few weeks we'll look at more deeply as we consider Christ as the good shepherd and the gate of the sheep. In John 10, Jesus declares that he has come to give life, but not just life, life more abundantly. And here's a little Beirut trivia. If you've been to AUB on the campus through the main gate, you walk in, you turn around, and you see that verse. I've come to give life and life more abundantly. And yet we are still between two worlds. Not, not the world that was, as I considered before, the Garden of Eden and between the world to come, eternity to heaven, but between two worlds of today and forever. We can think of it uh, between the already and the not yet. Right? There are some realities in Christ that we already experience, but, but they're not yet fully realized. For example, the presence of God. Right? He is with us and in us already, but not yet have we seen him face to face in that garden city. Now, how do we experience that abundant life and how do we reflect his presence today? That's how I want to close our time this morning. I want to think on two ways that we can say with joy and certainty that our God is with us today and forever and to say it with conviction and with truth, not a theological theory, but a joyful experience. So two ways we can apply this sermon, two ways that we can say with certainty that God, excuse me, our God is with us today and forever. Number one, by welcoming one another. Welcoming one another. Listen to Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Paul writes, Therefore, welcome one another, just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. Now, this is written in the context of the church. To welcome one another isn't just to say hello to one another on Sundays, even though you should. That would be very strange if no one spoke to one another, right? This isn't a call to just put up with one another for Jesus' sake, which I think sometimes we think, well, if we can just get through that conversation, that glorifies God. No, this is a call to welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Think about how far away we were from God because of our sin. We are called to remember that we have no peace or no presence if we weren't brought close, if Christ didn't welcome us in. And so as Christ brought us in, we too bring one another in, into the church, into our lives. Now, this might not sound very significant on the surface, but friends, this isn't something that any of us can do without Jesus. That's because it's not so easy to welcome some of us. 
And this is where I don't make eye contact with anyone. Because I'm not talking about any of you, of course. Maybe I'm talking about all of you. You'll never know. Right? But think about it. We come from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different cultures and different experiences, different levels of wealth and of poverty. There are those in this room who love Mashawi and Tawuk. And then there are others who are vegetarians. You're welcome, of course. But we're showing the contrast and the difference. We have knafi lovers and others who don't like sweets. Friends, it's not easy to welcome one another with these differences. And so as we welcome one another, what we're doing is we're reminding each other and displaying to all who will watch that we belong to God. Because if we didn't have that union with Christ, then we couldn't have it with one another. That's what the Bible teaches We couldn't prioritize it or extend it without Christ who is in us. And how beautiful is it when we, as Christ said, some parting words to his disciples, that the world will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. It's Paul speaking speaking about the same thing. They're going to take a look and say, what are all these people doing together? There is no reason for them to be in the same room. There's something weird and strange and special. And we say it's Christ. And we eat our knafe and our bowl of salad together because of Jesus. Number two, bearing with one another. So welcome one, one another and bear with one another. Again, there's so much that can be said about all that this could mean and the many ways that it can be seen in the life of our church. But, but I want to highlight the point of being there for one another. Now, bearing one another's burdens could mean helping to fix a situation, and by God's grace, that's wonderful. If you are able to be there in such a way to resolve a situation, that's how kind is our God. Right? But at the root of this idea of bearing with one another is that we're not alone. It's the idea that we can minister to each other by just being present. Just last night, I was on the phone back and forth with a member of the church. There was nothing I could do to remedy the situation that they were in. But I think it was important that they knew that they weren't alone. And we all feel that, don't we? Right? To deal with the fears and the hardships and the worries of this broken world is far too much to do alone. But we are not alone. God is with us now and forever. And that's seen most beautifully and powerfully in the life of the church. Where we're not alone, but we are together united in Christ and in the presence of God. In closing, let me dare to edit and add to the Spurgeon quote that I read in the beginning. Children of God, whatever you have not got, you have a God in whom you may greatly glory. And you have the church wherein you can experience and display his gracious presence. Amen.